2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, joined by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. I understand that you've been out doing interviews in this heat wave. I have been. I've been out in the world doing interviews. In this case, I interviewed Malcolm Gladwell. Back mm. on the show. Back on, on the, the show. show. Repeat yeah. guest. Couldn't get enough. Second time we found him on the show. I wanted to have him again because he has a podcast of his own out called Revisionist History. If you listen to it, you'll find it to be similar in many ways to Malcolm Gladwell's writing. He's taking things that are maybe forgotten or thought of a certain way and looking at them again in surprising ways. So we talked about that and a lot else besides. Also, I will say it was incredibly hot. We did it as an apartment. When I got there, he said to me, I can turn on an air conditioner if you want to, but I am impervious to heat. I want to tell you guys a story. Uh, one of the episodes from Malcolm Gladwell's podcast is about like uh, why no one shoots free throws underhand in the NBA, like why they're too proud to do that. And uh, I played high school basketball, and in a very big moment, in a very big game, I airballed a free throw. Underhand? No. <laughs> so you, you were <laughs> that episode really spoke to me. I was that I was that asshole who was too proud to just granny shot it, make the shot, win the game. If you need to win the game with emails, there's no better way than with a Mailchimp. They are simply the best way to set up an email newsletter for your business or your project or what have you. Whether you have 100 people subscribed or 100,000, they've got you covered. Here's Evan with Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. We are in your home where we were before, although it was I don't think it was a setup. At the time, you had more recently moved in. And also, you were not engaged in the art of podcasting at the time. I joined the club. <laughs> That's one reason I wanted to talk to you again, is that you've sort of entered this uh, other realm. It's the number one podcast in iTunes last time I checked, which was yesterday. So there are probably people who do podcasts out there saying, why did he have to get into this? Why couldn't he leave this to us? Was this another book that became a podcast series, or was this something that you just decided you wanted to tackle? Well, it started out as procrastination. Uh, <laughs> didn't want to start my next book, and so I needed to have a, a reasonable excuse not to start it. And then I got into it and sort of really liked it. And I also had all these misapprehensions in the beginning because I thought that it was just writing articles and saying them. Mm -hmm. Because these episodes are scripted and right. not interview shows. So... I said, oh, it's like, I'll just, it'll be like writing little things and I'll just speak them on, you know, and we'll add some sound effects and we'll be all done. And then I sort of realized halfway through the process that it's actually a different kind of storytelling. And that's when I got really excited because I feel like I discovered this thing that I hadn't known, which is that when you're dealing in sound, there's all kinds of things you can't do, but there's all kinds of things you can do that are sort of amazing I've never been able to do before. What, give me an example of that uh, kind of thing. Um, emotion. It's just so much 
the kind of emotions you can evoke are so much more powerful. So there's a, my favorite episode is episode number nine. It's called Generous Orthodoxy. I won't give it away, but it's about a 98-year-old minister, Mennonite minister, and his relationship to his son. And there's a moment in that episode when he starts to cry, when he starts to talk about his son. And there's no way you don't start to cry too. Just Mm -hmm. no. I mean, I've listened to it God knows how many times. I cry every time. And I'm, you know, I'm not an easy crier. Um, But just like that idea that you share in his, he's describing something so intimate, so powerful, so, I mean, he's talking about something that is in the center of his heart. And you, because you can hear his voice, you're there, right? I mean, I couldn't write that so that you would cry. Maybe, but I would have a hard time doing it. Uh, but if I can let you hear the sound of his voice, you can feel it. And that was, I've always felt, I'm limited as a writer in that I, I'm not good at eliciting strong emotional responses. I feel I can describe complicated things, I can communicate mm. ideas, but emotions are harder in writing, particularly for me. I'm just not that, I don't think I'm that strong a writer. But now, wow, you know... <laughs> I can do it. It's sort of fantastic. What about doing interview? I, a thing that I found on this podcast, for instance, is the difference between reporting for a written story and doing an interview that you know is going to be taped and your side of it is going to be heard. It caused me to have to rethink how I conducted interviews. And I'm curious, did your style of approaching people change? Well, only in the sense that they told me the producers, the minute they heard my first interview tape, they're like, you can't do the uh-huh, 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 uh-huh thing that I've done in my whole life. Exactly. So um, so I just had to be very self I was very self-conscious about having to shut up and to give my encouragement through nodding and not through saying stuff. Um, but it wasn't, no, I think my interview technique was, um, I haven't been conscious of talking to people in a different way it's more about conscious of how i arrange the arguments or although i don't know maybe maybe did yeah no no i mean it's like maybe you're more aware when you're being lame Mm -hmm. so you realize oh you know i'm that was such a stupid thing to say or you know i have to take that out or i'll have to re-ask the question in a way that makes me sound like i have a brain you know that so there's that sort of thing you have to hide your imperfections maybe but yeah i mean i feel like there's a lot of sort of expressing ignorance in doing an interview that you're trying to elicit something it's not performative and when it becomes performative it's a sort of different animal i mean the, the one big difference is i feel i mean the great temptation of a journalist I'm sure you felt this, is you go in, talk to someone, and they say something in an unguarded moment that they probably shouldn't have said. And those kinds of statements fall into two categories. They say something that they didn't mean in retrospect, when you think back on it, or they say something that they did mean but didn't intend to disclose. And when I'm writing, I've always tried very hard to identify those moments and never to use them. And this is actually a, a point of departure I have with some other journalists. Mm-hmm. Just because the person says it doesn't mean you can use it. Yeah, we talked about this a little yeah. bit last time. Yeah. Um, with a p- 
podcast, the temptation to use something that someone didn't actually mean is way stronger because there's so much inherent drama in the tape, right? So I, I find I have to police myself a lot more because that slip when someone does either A or B can be really powerful mm-hmm. on the tape. I mean, it mm-hmm. can be like you're really riveted by, you know, and the the listener is vicariously participating in witnessing someone screw up. I think that's that's not a healthy thing. I want to return to that in a second, but first let's talk a little bit generally about what the podcast is about because it takes a pretty broad approach thematically, I feel like, that a lot of things can fit into. So what's your thumbnail yeah. for the podcast? Well, the kind of, it's called Revisionist History because every episode is supposed to be about something in the past that's been overlooked or misunderstood. You know, and that can be very broadly defined. One of the reasons we chose to order them the way we did is we wanted to establish as broad a palette of themes as possible. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, so the you first get the three sense, cast very First three, you know, about a painting and politics, about basketball and free throws and people who do things they shouldn't and about some obscure Pentagon project in Vietnam. So I, I wanted to kind of make the array of possibilities as wide as possible to go in almost any direction with this revisionist impulse. Did you start with the theme and then say, okay, what do I have in my sort of idea cabinet? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of my work is essentially that, Yeah. right? I'm very, I'm very history oriented and I'm my entire life, I've been obsessed with the fact that the conclusions you draw in the moment are almost invariably different from the conclusions you draw upon reflection. I find that fact about human beings to be so unbelievably interesting, terrifying. It's not that you're wrong in the moment, although you're typically wrong in the moment. It's just that you're different upon reflection. And just this whole notion that human beings change their mind all the time. And they don't realize they're doing it and they're scared of doing it and i mean it's just that fact is kind of we sort of privilege so much the spontaneous moments in our life but the spontaneous moments in our life are always false moments (laughs) that that to me is like amazing right like it's such a kind of bizarre heavy concept so, like, half of my writing is about that fact, right? So, I mean, why wouldn't I do a podcast about that fact? But does, does it impact your life? Do you think about these ideas oh, in terms I'm, of your I, personal life? Yeah, I am. I think it's probably been a bad thing. I've become a kind of an enemy of the spontaneous. I keep my mouth shut in the moment. I'm constantly constructing elaborate imaginary arguments and not voicing them. And then going back several weeks later and seeing whether I still believe that. I did this with uh, the whole Gawker lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I had like five different positions on that. I voiced none of them. But every time something, there was some new turn in that case, I changed my mind. <laughs> where, did, where did you land? Are you now prepared to express your opinion about it? Well, my, in the end, my opinion has gotten so complicated, which is probably a good thing. I have like five largely contradictory opinions on that case, which would take like, like a good half hour to explain. <laughs> we and can there, do it. <laughs> well, here's one of them. And this is not a pro or anti point. It's a point that my entire life, I've worked for journalistic institutions that had lawyers. And the function of the lawyer was to come to you, the writer, and say to you, not 
by the way, small amount of times, but all the time, and say to you, you can't write that. We'll get sued. I've heard that phrase. I was 10 years at the Washington Post. I've been at the New York New Yorker. I've had dozens of interactions with staff attorneys in that time in which they have said some version of that. Or if they didn't say it outright, that's what they meant. Mm-hmm. You can't say that. Now, they, there were many reasons for saying that. One is... What you're saying is true, but we're going to get sued and lose a lot of money. It's just not worth it. It's a risk. And at the bottom line, what they were saying was, if you're going to take that risk of being sued, it better be something of consequence. The Pentagon Papers. They're basically saying to me, your story is too trivial for us to take that kind of risk. That's Mm -hmm. what they were saying. And by the way, they were invariably correct. And in every single case, I think I folded. At Gawker, they either had that person and they didn't listen to him or her or they didn't have that person and what happened exactly what the lawyers always said they would happen would happen they got sued so like everyone says this is some test of the first amendment this is some big sentinel case of like silicon valley flexing its muscles it's all this of new no it's nothing new this is this is exactly what what they have been saying for decades would happen which is if you cross a line not even a line if you there are things that you say as a publication that will get you in trouble after the fact and probably cost you a lot of money even if you're in the right and you got to pick your battles. Gawker chose to pick its battles over the most preposterously trivial, nonsensical, over a videotape of a guy having sex with his friend's wife. Like, that's the rock you want to die on? We're having a... I mean, if it was the Pentagon Papers, I would be saying, yeah, go for it. Like, this matters. This is... You know, so I'm like, I don't know, like, this whole thing is averted if they just did what everyone else has been doing for 25 years, which is just say, actually, that's going to get us in trouble. We're not going to do it. Right. So like, I guess at the end of the day, I was like, this is one of these cases. Everyone wants to escalate cases like this into the realm of high principle. There's no principle here. It's just like you're going to listen to the lawyer and the lawyers are right. You know, you get in trouble. Like, whatever. I mean. I, if there was no lawyer at the Washington Post, do you know how many times they would have a Peter Thiel type lawsuit? Every day. You piss off. And also the other thing, while I'm on this little thing, everyone says, well, the problem was that Peter Thiel was being vindictive. Right. Wait a minute. Every lawsuit in America involves a rich guy who's vindictive. That's what the legal system is. It is the mechanism by which rich people, you know, exercise their vindictive feelings, right? That's what it is. I mean, that's not new either. By the way, that's why you're, you listen to the lawyer when he says you should print that because there's lots of vindictive rich people out there, right? So it's like, there's nothing. No, this does not settle the issue of whether I'm pro or anti-Gawker. I don't know if I am. I'm still thinking about it. But it does suggest that when I make my decision, I'm not going to make it on a high moral plane. The, to me, there's no moral issue here whatsoever. Same old, same old. Yeah. And I mean, by the way, the other thing that annoys me is, so they go out of business. They're a internet publication. They can walk across the street and start tomorrow. The whole thing about internet-based media is they don't have this massive, expensive install base and infrastructure that traditional media does. So if you put Gawker out of business, they literally turn around, rent another room, fill it with kids... And start over with Gawker 2. Like this, so like, what is, I don't understand what the consequence here is. Peter Thiel can't win. You can win if it's 1965 and you 
have a judgment against the Washington Post and printing presses they and distribution networks cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But you and I could start Gawker in this room right today for $50, right? So like no billionaire, no billionaire can silence us. That's the whole point of the internet, right? So why are we forgetting the point of the internet the minute that there's a controversy? I'm just gonna say, I don't think our Gawker would be successful. The one that we start in this room, you and oh, I. Yes. I'm not sure that it would. It would. No, no, no. We're not very. Good. I suspect we're not very good at that. But well, I don't want to get up on this too much. I also am a little bit uh, conflicted about about it. But I would. It seems like the difference that is expressed about the lawsuit itself is that yes, there are rich people all over the world suing people, and that's how they they achieve their version of rich people justice. Um, but he's not suing about the thing that was published about him. He's mining for uh, yeah. something to take them down as opposed I to... Mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, 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 I grant that. I'm not convinced that's a t- trivial uh, distinction. Um, you know, like I said, he can sue all they want. He can't, he can't stop them from publishing. He can diminish Nick Denton's bank account. But Nick, Nick Denton got very, very rich uh, on a risky strategy, right? On a strategy of walking the line. So, you know, this is what happens when you do that. I mean, I don't think no one should be surprised that this is uh, one of the possible outcomes. If he didn't want to pursue a risky strategy, he could have put his money in T-bills, right? No one's going to sue him for putting his money in T-bills. I mean, it's like, I don't know, rich people, and Nick Dennis are rich people, take risks with their money all the time. If you're in the media business, this is what the category of risk is. If you're in the oil business, it's a oil spill off the Gulf of Mexico. If you're, that's business, right? Hey, we're going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Audible. More audiobooks than anyone. 250,000, Aaron. 250,000. You could just listen to audiobooks for the rest of your life. <laughs> Several lifetimes. Namely, you, you make it through Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. You've become so in love with his voice mm. and what he has to say. It all started on the long-form podcast. It all starts on the long-form podcast. Then you get addicted to revisionist history, and then uh, the stock dries up, and you're out in the street looking for more Gladwell. Where do you find it? Audible. They've got uh, what do they got here? David and Goliath. Yep. They've got Outliers. Blink. You could be li- you could be listening to Malcolm Gladwell all day, especially if you sign up through our promo code. Where's that at? It's at audible.com/longform. That's audible.com/longform. If you go there, you can start a 30-day free trial and listen to any of those books for free. Our next sponsor is Squarespace. If you're building a website in 2016, I can't think of a reason why you would not be doing it with Squarespace from everything from like a one-page simple thing to a complex e-commerce site. They have got you covered. Amazing templates. Great support. And you don't need to know any code. You don't need to know any code. In fact, you don't even need a credit card to get going. You can start designing your site today. If you like it, sign up for a year. You get a free custom domain name. That is true. And if you put in the offer code LONGFORM at checkout, you'll get 10% off. So again, squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM when you sign up, 10% off, and you'll be supporting this show. Thank you, Audible, and thank you, Squarespace. Let's get back to Evan and Malcolm Gladwell. Last time we talked, 
you said something, I won't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, I don't want to conduct an interview with someone and then later have them say, I wish I had not talked to him. Yeah. And I feel like on this podcast series, there is one of those. Uh, oh, which one? The, the president of Stanford. The president of Stanford, ah. first of all, it's very interesting to me because it seems that it came about because of something that you tweeted. You were sort of angrily tweeting yeah. about the endowments of uh, yeah. universities and that they were accepting these giant donations. And then you, according to the podcast, heard from the president of Stanford who just contacted yeah. you. And what did he, first of all, what did he want from you? Like, what did he... I'm still mystified by that. So, yeah, I didn't ask to interview him. He wanted to talk to me. And yeah. so I said, well, would, can we do it on the record for my podcast? And he said, yes. I don't think he will regret talking to me because I represented his position so this is, yeah, this is an episode about endowments and about what I find very puzzling, which is why do rich people give money to rich institutions, right? I, would, I, I still, for the life of me, cannot wrap my mind around this fact that, so if you have a billion dollars, why would you give hundreds of millions of dollars to an institution that is, you know, maybe the third or fourth best endowed university in the history of mankind. Like, why, why, what possible psychological motivation? It would be as if you had a billion dollars and I had a billion dollars, and at the end of this interview, I wrote you a check for 500 million just because. Because I want to see, Evan, I would like you to have a little more money in the bank. I don't think a billion is enough. Appreciate that. Where, where does that impulse come from? <clears throat> I find this, so this is a, a, to me a, a central fact of American life is that rich people love giving each other money. By the way, this, there's a whole series of rich people things in America that I don't get along the same lines. Why do rich people care so much about taxes? Think about it for a moment. Poor people are generally spoken, believed to be the people who care the least about taxes. But if you're poor, taxes of all kinds, not just income tax, but taxes of all kinds, really, really dig into your bottom line, right? They hurt. You pay a sales tax, it matters. You pay the tax at a pump, it matters. If you pay, if you've got a family of four and you're making $65,000 a year, when you write that check to the federal government or the state government every year, that's, you know. But all of our conversation around taxes, weirdly, is not about that family of four making $65,000 a year. It's about billionaires complaining about their taxes. The whole tax conversation is dominated about a billionaire. Why? They have a billion. They don't even notice the money. Like, they can't count that high. I mean, it makes no sense. I would have thought the whole point of getting rich is you can stop worrying about things like taxes. You can take that off your list. You can wake up one morning and say, you know what? I no longer have to worry about taxes. That's fantastic. I can now just consume to my heart's content because I'll never run out of money. They don't think that. What do they do? They go to terrible, boring fundraisers and write checks to, like, white guys who promise to lower their taxes. It just, why would you waste your time doing that? So, like, that's a puzzle. Anyway, so the other, the corollary puzzle is that rich people love giving their money to, like, Harvard and Stanford. Yeah. Why? I mean, it's just it's so bizarre. So I wanted to do a show about this. And by the way, I think the show is really quite nice to rich. I actually give them an argument that uh -huh. they don't use themselves. I give them what I think is a pretty coherent argument to justify why 
you should give $500 million to Stanford and not $500 million to a school down the, you know, a struggling state school somewhere. I happen to think that argument is wrong, but at least I give them an argument. As far as I can tell, most rich donors who give money to rich institutions don't have an argument. When you probe, I mean, I had this whole Twitter thing that I did about John Paulson's $500 million gift to Harvard. Yeah. $400 million gift. And there was a lot of pushback from hedge fund guys who were, came rallying to his side. And I was quite fascinated. I read all the kind of pushback. They were all very angry at me for criticizing John Paulson for giving that much money to Harvard. Not a single one of them had a coherent argument as to why it was a good idea to give for John Paulson to give money to Harvard. They didn't have a, and to the extent they had arguments, they made no sense. They were like, well, this will help us cure cancer. No, it won't. There's no, <laughs> the money's not going to cancer research. And by the way, there isn't a single cancer researcher at Harvard who is lacking for funds, right? <laughs> Think about it. For that, for that argument to have any sense, there has to be a brilliant scientist at Harvard University who right now, at this very moment, wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I could cure cancer if someone just gave me $500,000, right? Let me tell you this, that guy does not exist, right? The problem in curing cancer is not a lack of money, certainly not a lack of money at Harvard University, mm -hmm. right? If anything, it's a lack of money at schools off the map that have some quirky out-of-the-box thinker who right now is getting no support at all. So if you want to if you want to use that argument, it's the wrong place to do it. So once they get past, well, we're trying to cure cancer, they have no argument. None. Yeah, but the, when it comes to the the president of Stanford, I mean, listening to it and listening to you, like I I fully agree with you. Like I am, he had no argument. He had no argument, but I do think that I mean, this is a guy that whatever he's going to be fine either way. Like no no nothing can really Wait, impact his like yeah. position in the world. I'm sure, but at the same time. He's president of Stanford. Like, probably his job is basically to just raise money. And one of the things that you throw at him is, would you ever turn money away? Would you ever yeah. send money down the road to the UC school and say, actually, we don't, this money would be better served Stanford there. Stanford has $22 billion in the bank. But what, what is this guy going to say? There's no okay, way so that he is ever going to say, yes, I would turn that money away. He would have to be no, the kind given, of person who would never be president of Stanford. He could acknowledged. So, to backtrack from it to your earlier question, does this interview with the president of Stanford, which uh, figures looms fairly large in that episode, <laughs> does it violate my rule that I should never quote someone who will regret talking? To which, me? by the way, I, I thought that it happily, I thought that it did. When I listened to it, I thought, it, this is fantastic. Okay, this, uh, I actually, well, when I say that I don't think he will regret talking to me, am I deluding myself? I actually think he won't find my criticisms of his position terribly persuasive. In other words, I don't think he will regret it because I think he lives in a bubble. The whole point to me of that interview with him was, the key point was when I said to him, you must get this a lot. You must hear from people like me all the time saying, why does Stanford with $22 billion in the bank need another $500 million? And he said, no, I don't hear that. And that tells you everything you need to know. He, in his world... It's fine. It, it's, it's a right and proper thing to give to make the rich richer. Um, so I don't think I think he'll hear that and he'll hear his own arguments and he'll say, I was putting forth my case. I don't think he'll shrug when he hears my. But and even if he but suppose suppose he does regret talking to me, 
I think I will make an exception to my rule in his case because he's an adult. He knew what he was doing. And also he doesn't, to, if, I, if I can go back and parse my law, I don't want to quote someone saying something that does not reflect their true position. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't want to or catch that they sort of gotcha remember the moment. two principles was one they say it and didn't mean it, and two they meant it but didn't mean to disclose it. In his case, both conditions are upheld. He said what he believed, and he intended to disclose it. Right, so I under those two conditions, I will quote him. That that stands to he's. I would have not quoted him if if he had slipped out and said. You know, some outrageous thing that he would wanted to take back. It did not. Ref- that was either not politic, or I would have not used it. But everything, everything he said to me, he would say to you right now. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what he believes, and so I think it's fine. When you were developing the podcast, did you think about the audience? Is this audience different than the audience for your books? Or yeah, uh, no, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think it's a it gets very tricky when you spend too much time thinking about who your audience is. Uh, Like I had friends of mine who are quite conservative. In the first episode, when I talk about Hillary Clinton and imagine what would happen if she would become president, I had friends who were not fans of Hillary Clinton, objected to like, and if you look at some of the comments on iTunes, people who are not fans of Hillary Clinton felt that show was too pro-Hillary. So, Just because it made it made a, an assumption that she might be president. No, and because that. I was saying that some of the criticism directed at her might be illegitimate. Ah, if I was worried about my audience, I might not have done that episode, right? Did I worry? You know, if I was worried that I might alienate conservatives, would I have? I might have pushed back on that episode. I think it would have been a bad idea. I don't. You shouldn't worry about that. And people who are conservative should be fine with the fact that they can listen to something and not agree 100% with where the argument goes. The argument itself is not specific to one ideology or another. The basic argument of that first episode is about this idea of moral licensing. That anyone, I think, can grasp that and accept it and believe it, regardless of their ideological position. Mm-hmm. I happen to go in a particular direction with Hillary, but I don't worry about that. I mean, you're, you know, people are... There are other episodes that will not... My father said to me when he listened to the food fight episode, he's in Canada, my father's quite blunt. He said, I don't have any interest in a show about essentially American college tuition. I mean, he's part of a system where the government pays the tuition, so why does he care? But I was like, fine, you know, like, I, so I said to him, you know, that's why there's 10 episodes, right? So you like the next one. I don't think you can, you can tell when someone is tailoring what they're doing to a, imaginary audience and I think that's a bad thing when you can sense that I don't like being targeted by what I'm listening to but what about the sort of base of expected knowledge so like in terms of the episode about Carlos and you know the kid who is uh, helped to get sort of out of his circumstances into private school and then Mm -hmm. uh, it's about his education and there's elements of that. I just happened to, I interviewed Nicole Hannah-Jones a few months ago, so I had read a lot of her work. And so I feel very more immersed than I would normally be in sort of education and segregation education, all of these issues. And so the podcast to me felt like it was starting from zero. Like it was assuming that I did not have any awareness of those issues yeah. and kind of 
Yeah. Going from there. Do you, when you sit down, do you say, I want someone who does not pay any attention to this to be able to listen to it and understand it all the way through? Is there, is there a calculation? Well, that one, there? well, that was a storytelling choice. So this is an episode, the first of the three episodes on education. And it's about a kid called Carlos. And there was a case where basically that show is about this, these two characters, Eric, who's the guy who tries to help Carlos and Carlos. And I sort of felt this is something I would never have done if I was writing. This is a classic moment where I did the interview with the two of them. I listened to the tape and I was like that. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to make an incredibly complicated argument here. Carlos himself is so compelling. It's a very compelling kid. Yeah. Uh, that I should just get out of the way and I should make all of the surrounding narrative superstructure as simple as possible. So I'm trying to make an emotional point with that. And I don't want to, in later, in that edu educational mini-series in, in the middle of, of revisionist history, I make much more kind of sophisticated policy arguments. Mm -hmm. But that one, I just wanted <clears throat> anyone, anywhere in the world, even people who know nothing about American educational system, I wanted them to be able to listen to that and be moved by episode's called Carlos Doesn't Remember. I want them to be moved by the fact that, by what he has to forget, right? That's all I want. A really, really simple. Know whether, I hope it works. I don't know whether it works, but that was my intention. Mm -hmm. And you can do that. People who have worked in this medium for years know this, but you, that's what you can do in radio. You can do 45 minutes looking for one incredibly simple response, right? I, I just want you to choke up at the end. That's all I want. All right. And do you feel uh, sort of yourself immune? I feel like because of your books and your work for The New Yorker, that there's a sort of uh, people attach arguments to your work, whether you like it or not. So taking that, that episode as an example, coming out of that, I could see people saying, well, what, what is he saying here? Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about that. So how... That show deliberately steers clear of reading too deeply into, so what do you do? Right. Um, and I'm fine with that. I simply, um, so the, if I can summarize this, sh the, point, the point of this story of this kid is that, is a completely, in, you know, when I state it, obvious commonsensical conclusion, which is if you're poor, moving up, it's harder than it looks because there's all this other stuff going on in your life, right? If you want to move up in this world, in American society, if you're smart, your job is to work hard and focus on your studies. And there are tons of opportunities out there for smart kids who can focus on their studies. And my point of that show is simply to say that little equation is way too simplistic because if you're poor, there are so many things happening outside of your studies that interfere with your studies that it's insanely difficult to get out. Um, and you can go a hundred different directions with that. I guess I would say that show is simply intended to be an antidote to complacency. I think there's always this danger of kind of people declaring victory in the fight against inequality or of saying we have enough structures in place. Now it's just up to the poor person to pull themselves up. And I, I think it's very important to kind of 
guard against that. Because, you know, if you go to a dinner party on the Upper East Side, I don't mean to demonize the Upper East Side, but go to a fancy dinner party on the Upper East Side in the certain kinds of neighborhoods and get on this topic, there is a lot of complacency. There is a feeling that, you know, at the end of the day, those people just need to, like, put their nose to the grindstone and just look what I did in my life and blah, blah, blah. And that makes my blood boil. So that shows a kind of response to that imaginary uh, conversation that I've had numerous times with privileged people. Uh-huh. I want to talk about the episode with Wilt Chamberlain, partly because I was fascinated by listening to that and then reading uh, the piece that you did about school shootings, mm-hmm. which also addresses the same mm-hmm. research from a sort of different angle. Wilt Chamberlain, who had this free throw shooting technique that he adopted, that uh, then he abandoned because basically he's, you know, made him look like a sissy was, was the argument. And that's a similar argument to the mm-hmm. why school shooters have this sort of lower threshold. Is this threshold-based research that you describe, is that sort of rattling around in your head for a number of years and you're looking for an outlet for it? Or yeah. So Granovetter, Mark Granovetter is one of my, I mean, not just my favorite sociologist, I mean, he's one of the greats. I went back and reread the threshold paper after not having read it for a long time a year and a half ago and just was like I just have to write about this I love this idea so much it's so powerful explains so much and so the first time around I used it to explain the contagion of school shootings Mm -hmm. because I stumbled across this amazing case in Minnesota Um, and then I thought I'm not done with it I want to keep going Um, and in some ways using a very prosaic almost trivial example how you shoot foul shots in a basketball game, can be a more powerful way to communicate the idea than using a horrific example. I'm really interested in this idea of what is the best vehicle for communicating a complicated, really interesting idea? Is it to encase it in a story that creeps up on you and kind of seems trivial? Or is it to encase it in a story that shocks you? Um, I don't know. I want to try both. I I go back and forth about which is better. Mm-hmm. Um, as a way of communicating something. Well, I was wondering when I listened to the Will Chamberlain episode, it seemed to me there was a possibility that was not expressed, which is that the idea of to be driven to be sort of like the greatest, that maybe that that itself has limits. Yeah, he was good enough. Yeah. Yeah, that is actually, it's really interesting you say that because that's the other element of the difference. So the in the piece I contrast... Wilt Chamberlain with one of his contemporaries, the great basketball player, Rick Barry. Yeah. Barry is absolutely driven to be the greatest basketball player he can possibly be. And I think Wilt Chamberlain wanted to be many things. I don't know if you know his life. But he, he lived this kind of like larger than life life. He, yeah. he wanted to be a connoisseur of wine. He wanted to have incredible art. He wanted to build this fantastic house in Los Angeles. He wanted to be a kind of player on the grand stage. Basketball was one of the things he did, but not the only thing. And I think, yeah, I think maybe there was a point where he said, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm the greatest basketball player of my era. I don't need to be a perfect three throw shooter as well. Whereas Rick Barry, literally that idea that you would say I'm good enough has never in his entire life crossed his mind. That much came through. Yeah, <laughs> which is what is so kind of lovely about Rick Barry. I fell in love with Rick Barry. I... I just like, I love people who are, who are that way. I am not that way. And I, when I meet someone who is, I am transfixed 
You would say you're not that way. I'm not a perfectionist on the level of, I'm a good enough guy, I think. I mean, I'm a, my threshold for what good enough is is maybe higher than other people, but I do not, you know, I was a, I was a very good high school athlete and walked away. I saw what it would take to try to be a great one, and it didn't interest me. But what about in, in writing? I mean, it's a sort of similar... Uh, yeah, I, get, I mean, I have seen at The New Yorker what perfectionism looks like. And I know that I, past a certain point, I have no time for it. I mean, I don't. You know, I just like, there's a point at which it's, it's fine. Let's just move on. I will do 10 drafts. I won't do 11. I know people who will do 11, right? So, and Rick Barry would do 15. I guess I'm saying on that continuum, <laughs> I'm on the high end, but I'm not at the top. It did make me wonder whether that was something that you valued, like that level of perfection. Totally value it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I find it, um, I love people like that. I just, and I love all of the difficulty that's associated with that position. Like, I have a really, really good friend, I won't use his name, who is pretentious. But he's pretentious in the best possible way. He's pretentious because he takes ideas really seriously and he views ideas with a kind of exactitude and specificity. So he doesn't use ideas casually. He doesn't say, yeah, it's like that idea from German philosophy. He'll say, it's like that idea that Nietzsche had in blah, blah, blah. And it comes across as pretentious. Like, oh, God, he's talking about... And he'll use the German, right? The German word. But it's, it's not pretentious. It's beautiful. It's like he's not messing around when he's talking about this idea. This is a serious, consequential thing. And he can't think about it except in the most specific way. And when he does that, I love it. It's the thing I love most about him. I just think it's fantastic, right? If you want to live your life in the world of ideas, that's the way to do it, right? Don't blow them off. I, I have a, one of my favorite podcasts is The Weeds. Do you remember you're listening to The Weeds? It's I haven't listened to Ezra it. Klein, yeah. Sarah Cliff, and Matt Iglesias. And they're three of the most fantastic nerds, and they nerd out, basically, for 45 minutes. I love it. But they do this thing. They do one little thing which drives me crazy, which is they make fun of themselves for nerding out at the beginning of every show. Uh-huh. In some way or another, they just not deliberately. It just comes out. They're like, oh, they make a little fun of us, and I hate it when they do that. Because I'm like, don't make fun of it. Don't, don't give in to the kind of popular impulse that to be cool you can't care deeply about some study from the Journal of whatever. No, own it. That's who you are, and that's why I'm listening, right? Because I want to nerd out with you, and I want to feel like this is a valuable exercise and i don't want to apologize for it so don't apologize for it like i know they're that's not really they're just making a joke and they that's the obvious joke if you're a yeah. nerd but i don't want them to make the joke it bothers me i actually want to i want to i i feel if i had matt iglesias's email i would set i had it once i'm sure you can get in touch with them but i want to say matt stop it <laughs> i i love you just the way you are right I think in the last time we spoke, I didn't really ask you more about your career coming up. Was there a, a specific point that you remember when something took hold in terms of the style of writing that you has subsequently been been no, your style I think of the it years? Kind of emer- I mean, it, 
evolved over my years at the Washington Post and then in the beginning and then again during the New Yorker. I mean, just the New Yorker presents you with a, particularly if you're coming from newspapers, it presents you with a problem. I mean that in the best sense of the word problem, uh, an issue, which is that all of a sudden you have to write things that are anywhere between three and five times longer than you've ever written before in your life. So the post you write, a long story at the Washington Post was 1,200 words. Mm -hmm. A long story at the New Yorker is 10,000 words. So how do you go from 1,200 to 10,000? And how do you switch from, in a newspaper, everything is about compression. How can I represent something as quickly and simply as possible? And most of what you report, you never use. So then you have to go to a, a mindset which is about expansion. How can I tell the story in a way that is worthy of 6,000 words or 7,000 words? Totally different mindset, right? In the post, the question is, can I keep the reader with me for four paragraphs? It's basically what you try to get it done in four paragraphs. New Yorker is, how can I keep the person with me for an hour? Yeah. The way that I write is my attempt to adapt to that much more. It's not more demanding environment. It's just a different environment. And so... My thing was, well, I'm going to try and mix up ideas and narrative because I don't know how to fill the space any other way. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't have enough faith in my ability to just tell a story about a person. Like Michael Lewis tells a story about a person for right, yeah, eighty thousand words. I, I don't, I don't think I can do that. So I have to find some other way to tell the story. So that's sort of where it comes from. And Today, when you approach people for interviews, do you feel that there's people have an impression of you before you go in by virtue of your work that either they think either some trepidation about the popularization of their work, potentially simplification of their work, mm -hmm. and the other side of it that they're, this is going to make them famous or that their, their book, whatever they want to do, is, can ride on the coattails of you writing yeah. about them? Just because everything goes so big, like the podcast went to yeah. number one within a week or within a day, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I never get, to the extent that I get complaints from academia, it's never from academics that I have interviewed. Mm -hmm. It's always from academics that I haven't interviewed. Right. So, generally speaking, the people whose work I talk about are happy with the way I talk about it. I'm pretty careful and about, and to the extent that I simplify it, I think that I simplify it in ways that they... Uh, generally find acceptable and necessary you know I'm not I can't reproduce the research as it appeared in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology it doesn't work in journalism I have to represent it in some way and I try to represent it in uh, ways that help people understand the broader point um, but they also understand that my intentions are different my intentions are uh, I'm interested in the gist of what they're trying to do. Whereas a lot of, you know, when you're practicing science, the gist is only half the battle. I mean, it's the, the nuts and bolts are really, you know, but the nuts and bolts are necessarily of less interest to me. Um, so I think people get that. And then the people who don't get it criticize me. Um, but I really have a, very rarely have do I am in a situation where an academic declines to talk to me. It actually happened on the podcast. An academic who had been, but not because I, she thought I would wrong her, 
but because others had wronged her, other journalists, and she oh. just is not worth it. Hmm. Um, so, which is a decision I, I try to say, well, you know, I might be different. She gave me a chance, um, but she's like, no, um, which is a shame. And when you set out on something like doing this podcast or even a new book, do you do you strike me as someone who, at least in this setting, does not seem anxious about the outcome? But I'm curious if there are any anxieties about, you know, releasing this podcast is a new thing and it either could have tanked or you could wonder if uh, it's just popular because of the other things that I've done or people yeah. listen to it because it has my name attached to it. Like, I feel like there could be a set of anxieties and I'm curious, like we have writers on who a lot of them have all variety of anxieties that fuel their, yeah. their work in various ways. And I'm curious if, Do if I have, those I, things I don't have enter those, into I mean, it. I have anxieties. I don't have that kind of anxiety. I don't, uh, I was, it was so fun. I had a very kind of low stakes approach to it. I didn't think there was, there was nothing at stake. Yeah. Uh, it's not like my if it had failed my career would be judged as a failure and also I didn't think that the judge of whether it was a success or a failure was how popular it was I just thought if the people who were involved with it thought it was interesting and useful that was good enough for me Yeah, because it was a new medium and everyone was really into it so uh, and I was I mean I liked the shows and a couple of them I'm really proud of so that was enough. Um, people say nice things, and my mom likes it. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's, like, it's got a very nice reception. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have any. To the extent that I'm focused emotionally, I'm. It's on the creation, not the reception. Uh huh. I feel like there are a lot of people who do this sort of work who, if their work is not widely received feel in their hearts that that's what they want and if they were to obtain that everything would be great but everything would be anxiety free yeah that their work would then be much simpler and easier and it strikes me that that's probably not true no well the my rule of thumb is that the amount of criticism you get is a constant function of the size of your audience Uh uh-huh so if you think that Generously speaking, 80% of the people who read your work like it. That means if you sell 10 books, you have two enemies. And if you sell a million books, you have 200,000 enemies, right? So be careful what you wish for. Like (laughs) the volume of critics grows linearly with the size of your audience. I always keep that in mind when I I get criticized. (laughs) Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you again. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Malcolm Gladwell for graciously allowing me to come into his home and then uh, not sweating one bead of sweat the entire time while I sweat an entire bucket full of sweat. It was disgusting. Um, The man is truly impervious to heat. I appreciated talking to him. Thanks also to our sponsors, Audible, Squarespace, and MailChimp. Thanks as always to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. The show was edited this week by Mickey Capper, thanks to him, and our intern, Courtney Harrell. We will see you next week.